1: Welcome to New Books and Women's History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jane Semeca, professor of history at Brookdale Community College. Today, we'll be discussing a new book by Liz Clark titled, The American Girl Goes to War, Women and National Identity in U.S. Silent Film, published by Rutgers University Press. Liz Clark is an assistant professor of communication, popular culture and film, at Brock University in Ontario, Canada, where she teaches courses in the history of serial media, film blockbusters, race and representation in film and media, and popular culture. Dr. Clark, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you for having me. So tell us, how did this book come about? Well, this book was a revision of my dissertation. So um, it really changed over time. I am not a war film fan, but my brother, I have an older brother. So growing up, he made me watch very many war films. So I've always liked to analyze them as um, representations of national ideologies or national identity. Um, So I took a course uh, early in my grad degree about silent film fell in love with silent film and kind of married the two interests together. Um, and as I was doing the research of, um, after I had discovered you know, titles of films to watch, when I watched them, I re- realized they were all about women. And so that is how, uh, it wasn't that I initially decided to study women in war films, it's that I was doing a project on the history of war films and discovered that it was predominantly about women in this era.
1: Wow. So, so what were some of the challenges for finding and researching and watching
0: all these silent films? Um, So it's silent film. um, I think the statistic is that there's roughly 75% of silent films are lost. So it is not something that you, uh, if you want to do a comprehensive study of, you know, a grouping of films from that period, you are going to be faced with um, challenges because you can't watch them. Uh, I think of the, in my book, it might be a little less, in my dissertation, it was about 600 films that I was looking at, and I only watched maybe 50. So it's, um, what I ended up doing was focusing a lot on the promotion of the films, the way that they uh, were advertised in the trade press, which was magazines that were distributed to theater owners. Um, And so I looked at that like a text that needed to be analyzed, Um, didn't take it at face value. Obviously every film will be advertised as the best film ever, but um, there were ways that you could kind of work with the discourse that was circulating about these films even um, kind of comparing the way the advertisements for different films uh, emphasized different, uh, you know, different ideologies. So that's that became largely how I went about the research. That's, that's it's, it's really interesting
1: to think about um, how early filmmakers were trying, you know, the way they thought about their work and their business, right? And how to promote them and the things that they were assuming were going to sell it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And in case some people are not familiar with silent films in the early part of the 20th century, what was the film industry like
0: at this time? So the film industry changed so rapidly in this period, which is partly what made this book so enjoyable to write but also a huge challenge because it's not easy to compare the films from the early 1910s to the late 1910s um in the early 1900s films were non-narrative they were you know they might be 30 seconds or a minute long so um these those types of films are absolutely not comparable to the narrative films that started to come out late 1900s, early 1910s. So scholars of silent film will talk about this era as transitional when it's moving from just short films that are just spectacle to films that have developed narrative and editing techniques. Um, And at the same time, even the way that theaters ran was different, whether it was you're watching movies Uh, at an amusement park or are you going to an actual like purpose-built theater so that changes really rapidly over the early 1900s and there were again there were not there were multiple production companies Hollywood didn't become a thing until the 1910s so prior to that it was filmmaking in New York and New Jersey um, or some people doing on location stuff in, the, in Florida. Um, so you had lots of different companies. You had, even during narrative film, um, they were short films. So the early 1910s, these Civil War films, were maybe about 10 minutes. And you would go to the theater and watch a series of films, sometimes not even related. So it's not like somebody would go to a theater to watch war movies they would go to the theater and see maybe five or six films, all of different subject matter. Um, And then, which also kind of speaks to why there were so many films that I had to cover in this book is because they were coming out weekly, and they were short, and they were um, formulaic and fairly repetitive. And then the rise of the feature really happens mid-1910s. Oh, good. That's, that's really
1: helpful for understanding, you know, the development of filmmaking in general, you know, it yeah. really, it's really, and it seems like it's an important chapter in the history of film that we've sort of, we kind of don't think about much.
0: No, you know, I know.
1: It's, yeah. uh, and since you're talking in this book about the war genre, can you
0: tell us how you define war genre? Well, that's part of the intervention that I'm trying to make in with film studies is that I think war genre, we tend to think of just the combat films. Uh, and so I tried to expand uh, expand my net, I guess, to cover all instances of war, uh, and broadly defined as well because sometimes even just westward expansion was, uh, was represented as war. Uh, well, it was war, right? And so the, the um, it, but what happens in this era is that a lot of the films would be overlooked by war film scholars because they are either comedies or melodramas or they're really something else at their core because the genre hadn't been solidified yet. And so what I'm trying to do is say, if we expand what we imagine, the genre to be we see actually much more many more influences that led to the solidification in the 20s and 30s all right
1: that leads to my next question which is in the introduction of the book you write that this is a new understanding of
0: mm-hmm. the
1: history of war films and the importance of women to the genre so right. can you explain you know what, what what's the reader going to expect to find out when they read your book
0: um so again it's i think that there's they'll find a totally different representation of war than um, than previously understood. They will find that women's roles in war films aren't only just the home front woman waiting for the you know waiting for their husbands and lovers and um, and sons and brothers. You know, they're not just waiting at home. Uh, for the men at war to come back. They're not just uh, the other dominant image of women in war is like Rosie the Riveter of like going to the factory. These films are about women actually either putting on a soldier's uniform and going to war or, um, you know, acting as spies in order to turn the, the war in favor of whatever side they're on, these women aren't actively involved. And so um, that is what I find fascinating and what the book tries to um, tease out and understand. Yeah, and it's, it's sort of unexpected, you know, yeah. I think that, you know, we think of war
1: in such masculine terms.
0: Yes. And to yeah. see
1: these films give women such an active, not passive, yeah, it, it's
0: it's a lot of fun to see it. really well, one, is. one of the readings or the people that I studied and now I'm going to not be able to remember the reference, but there was someone who wrote about literature about the Civil War that came out after and then for like decades after the Civil War. And that if you look at the trends of Civil War literature, there's a pendulum of whether the literature is really about women or really about men. And so this idea that representing war has to be masculine is not fixed. And it's, I mean, it became fixed because the film industry loves genre, like they love standardization. And so from the twenties onward, you have the idea that war is all about men but that's not historically the case women were always involved women are always part of the nation
1: yeah and so this podcast channel looks at women's history yeah
0: how do you think your book fits in with women's history well i hope that it um like i hope that it will appeal to women's historians um american studies uh just an American you know, American history that this is very much, I mean, of course I'm coming from film studies and it is predominantly a film studies book, but it is, it is um, connected to what was happening politically at the time. It is connected to um, different discourse that was circulating in American politics and American culture. And so it's very much, it's, it's not that I'm trying to argue that women were fighting in the Civil War. like I mean, there are examples where that did happen, but I'm also trying to to uh, to make the argument that the representation of women in these films are actually really important to how um, how attitudes towards war and attitudes towards, militarism or imperialism were shaped in the period. Yes. And when I read this book, I kept thinking about the
1: themes from my course in women's history. Mm -hmm. And I I kept thinking, oh, how this book would be so useful in a women's history course. And you write on page 50 that women are key to guiding men toward becoming good Americans. Mm -hmm. And so this reminded me of really an important idea in my class, the idea of Republican motherhood. And it feels like this these films represent women um, in their roles as mothers of the nation, you yes. know, and, and that, you know, so what are your thoughts on the influence of uh, women in these films in that way?
0: Yes. And so uh, this, again, actually is part of where um, the a shift that happened from, I think, dissertation to the book is in the dissertation. I was very, positive about these women in the sense like it it was it seemed to me like this progressive unexpected form of heroism or that we have these like action heroes in the 1910s but i i recognize that these women are being used to further like dominant discourse or dominant ideologies again white supremacy, um, and imperialism or militarism. So it the idea of the Republican motherhood and guiding or being the moral center of the nation in this case is being used to justify expansion or justify uh, American exceptionalism. And so in many ways, it's kind of a uh, they are, yes, it is, uh, yes, these are independent or active and um, exciting women, but they're also being used to really solidify one particular type of American identity that is not indicative of the whole. And so I think that it's it's exciting but problematic at the same time
1: yeah it's taking that idea and it's really expanding it and almost distorting it yeah uh, to support a different agenda yes yeah but they picked something that people were kind of already comfortable with and understood this idea of women as the guardians of the families morals and and the you know to their influence in the household and yes. you know just taking that like to another level um well, it is very pro, it's it is problematic, but it's it's also fascinating to think that filmmakers had that in mind.
0: Yes, yeah. And I, what I find really fascinating as well is the shift from the mother to this younger pre adulthood. This, there is a, a lot has been written in, um, especially at this time that silent film was very much about these sort of post-adolescent but pre-adulthood women that they had more leeway. There was, it's this liminal space where you can get away with more before you have to marry and be a mother. And that the changes to femininity aren't, at the time weren't um, like the, the growing independence or the more like active nature wasn't necessarily something that was universally accepted, but it could be controlled if it was represented only in this space before they became adults.
1: Right. And you, and you have a whole chapter called the American girl. Yeah. So what is the, you know, what does the American girl mean in your, in your book and in these
0: films? So this is another thing that I think, um I I guess I'm very surprised that this doesn't that it hasn't been written about more um the new woman was a concept that was circulating in the era about um changes to femininity from the like cult of true womanhood in the Victorian era to this idea that women were um more independent they were Going out on their own, they were living in urban spaces. They were um, moving throughout the public sphere in different ways. They were some had jobs, and they were uh, and they they were just gaining independence in ways that any change that happens to like to um, a kind of dominant ideology is met with anxiety or met with. Um, criticism. And so what, what happened with the new woman is it quickly became a term of derision. Like it is not something, it was something that in the popular press or in newspapers was used as an insult. Um, and the American girl was always a celebratory term. It Well, it was celebratory until about 20 years in, and then it became something um, like American girls had gone too far but during this period the American girl was it was she's athletic she's like she's got vitality she and she has it because there's something about America there's something about the like uh again it it ties into westward expansion and it ties into the actual space of America where if Europe The thing that America left is bad and and old and traditional. America is vibrant and youthful and growing and, um, and the American girl represents all of that. And so she becomes a way to channel the changes that are the same thing that's happening in new womanhood or the new woman, but it's contained and, um, and controlled in a, a way that is, is representing or, uh, reinforcing American ideologies. Yeah. I was thinking of like women like Annie Oakley even. Yes. Yeah. Uh,
1: you know, and, um, in the twenties, women like Gertrude Etterly, who swims yeah. the English channel and in the press about Gertrude Etterly in the twenties. So it's like about a decade after your, um, your time frame, but, you know, she's talked about as, you know, this American girl who swims the channel and yes. she's celebrated as an athlete. So it's, yes. it's sort of like this, the beginning of kind of, um, you know, Americans coming to grips with teenage, you know, this, this idea of a teenager as being kind of a, you know, a distinct mm-hmm. part of your life, you know, yes. a, you know, you're a child, and then you're a woman, but there's this middle yes. adolescence that's adolescence also really important. Yeah. Yes. So it's, it's really, it's, it's very, uh, I think it's, it, you're right. It is kind of an under appreciated, understudied. Yeah. Kind
0: of, you know. And I mean, if you watch these movies, the actresses who played them are definitely not adolescents, but in the same way that I'm sure now we can, we have examples of 30 year olds playing teenagers in movies. but um, but yeah, it's very much about conceptualizing this this time period and allowing the the activity to happen there, allowing the transgressions to happen there so that they get out of like they they are, you know, out of their system by the time that they become wives and mothers. Hmm.
1: And and you're right in the book that these films were made for a white middle class female mm. audience.
0: So why is that demographic important? Um, to me, it's it speaks to the fact that it's it is white women that the the American girl is only the white woman. Again, coming back to why I was saying like I. I celebrate, but I also recognize the problematic nature of this. And so, the audience—the audience was being was being told, or, or it was reconfirming their center, their central place as American citizens, and decentering everyone else. Um, although the there were a fair number of um, immigrant women who would watch movies and, and really um, there's been a lot written about the way that they will use movies as a model to Americanize themselves. And so there's kind of an interesting, um, yeah, there's a, just an interesting way that that these, the intended audience is not always the real audience and how it then circulated was, uh, again, back to your question earlier about how hard is it to study this is because I could only study the, well, because I predominantly had the um, trade press, I don't have a good sense of how they were received by the general public, how were people, how were people grappling with this very narrow uh, image of the American girl?
1: Right. I was thinking about um, an article that I read uh, by Kathy Pice. Yes. About cosmetics. Yes. And the history of cosmetics and how you know women didn't wear makeup because it was either viewed as dangerous because they didn't know what the ingredients were. And also because culturally it was not considered something that nice women did. You know, yes. that's something that, you know, a sex worker wore makeup, you know, not a nice woman. So yes, she marks the film, uh, the really expansion oh. and the growth of the yeah. film industry and in acceptance, societal acceptance of wearing cosmetics because yeah. to the movies. And the stars on the screen all had mascara on and they yeah. all had lipstick on and it makes it much more uh, acceptable and, and and desirable.
0: Yes, uh, yeah.
1: For younger women to wanna emulate and look like the movie stars. Exactly. And yeah. I always found that to be, a. I thought that that was such a um, an interesting analysis of the like, what you were saying, like the you know, how do we know how what people thought about when they walked out of the movie theater? Uh, they could have walked yeah. out of these movies and gone, "Oh my god, war!" Ugh.
0: Yeah. Never, this is horrible.
1: War is so awful. Like you know. Yeah. I mean, like you know, think about some of the movies we war movies we watch now, like movies like even Apocalypse Now, some of the Vietnam movies, and how yeah. that has impacted. Uh, American sensibilities about war. Yes, exactly. Um, and you know, so it is it is a really tough thing to be say
0: or write about with any certainty, with any certainty. Exactly. And one of the ones that I struggle with still is the civil war films that I that I study. So many of them are about the Confederacy as the heroes. And it's it's I, I still don't have a good answer of how they would have landed for a Northern audience. So that is, that's a question. They were, so. But they were distributed nationwide, right? Yes, right. yeah, exactly. So, yeah. They were. So I. it's funny, like w- the ex- explanations I've heard is um, because they were distributed nationwide, that companies would make films either about the Confederacy or the Union and, it didn't it didn't matter because just show both sides i guess but to me that seems like it was still a very fresh wound that um that i find intriguing i find um i'm still i'm still perplexed by how those films would have circulated and you write that there's
1: like 300 films produced yes. about the Civil War. Why do you think they made so many?
0: Well, so one of the, the arguments is it's the 50 year anniversary. So it was, it was fresh in their minds. It was also, it's like when we think, I mean, I guess this is a little out of date now, but when things like Saving Private Ryan were coming out, the World War II veterans were still alive. Um, so in the 1910s, the Civil War veterans were still alive. It was still something that your family members would have, would be talking about. Um, and so there's that anniversary. I also would connect it to,, um, there's been a lot written, especially lately, because now people are tearing down the monuments. Um, but the monuments, the Civil War monuments that are still, you know, everywhere in in the, um, in the, not everywhere in the United States, but there's Civil War monuments that are still up um, that don't date back to the Civil War. They date back to the 1900s when memorializing it and changing its meaning was really essential to, uh, to kind of the race politics in the period and like, uh, supporting segregation and that there's actually, again, this is another way where the films, I find the films fairly problematic because they are part of that same, um, rewriting of the civil war in order to, uh, in order to erase race from the equation, but in the same way as then to support white supremacy. Right. It's also, I mean, just practically speaking, it's because they were short films. So 300 films is not 300 feature length films. They were coming out weekly and there were so many companies making them. So it's, yeah. Yeah. So how were women characters depicted in these civil war films? So there are, I mean, my two favorites are the cross-dressing soldier where um, somehow she would come across a soldier's uniform. There's one example. One film is her brother runs away from the war, which conveniently all of these movies, the battle is taking place like a block away from home because it's, it's, you know, it's the civil war. So it's happening in your own country. So the brother runs away from the battle because he didn't want to die. And she realizes that he's bringing shame upon the family. So she puts on his uniform and goes to battle for him, but then she dies and he has to stay um, locked at home for the rest of his life so that he, no one will know that she did it for him. So there's those kinds of like melodramatic types of films. Um, There's also girl spy films where, again, because the Civil War is happening in everyone's backyard, uh, a woman will be at home and will have to somehow um, somehow gets involved in the war, has to deliver a message, and because she's a woman, she can get easily across enemy lines because no one would suspect that she's doing something for the war. Um, So there's a lot of that, that really kind of um, there's a variety of ways that these girl spies function, either really um, emphasizing their femininity, having the, you know, hoop skirts and everything so that they seem innocent, but then there's also like active athletic women who will um, be wearing, you know, pants and running and um, like diving across rivers to to get through to the, you know, the camp that they need to send the message to. So there's a a wide variety there. Yeah. So could,
1: could you talk a little bit about the film The Spartan Mother? Yeah, The could Spartan you talk, Mother. It, you really go through that in the in the chapter really, and it's it's really fascinating I was wondering if you wouldn't mind
0: talking about that a little bit so the Spartan mother is um another one of those cowardly soldier stories where her son comes back because he doesn't want to die and she you know holds a gun to his head to say you have to like I won't have shame in this family you get back out there um and again I I think that this is about this is an extreme example of a woman who would sacrifice her son for the honor of her family and for the country or her, her country um, because her country means more to her than her family, which I, I mean, obviously I struggled to identify with the Spartan mother but it is very much about like emphasizing this war as um, like the the reference to spartan the in um, like the spartan culture that there's war war and honor above all else and that the and that mothers would be as in, integral to that um that ideology or that, you know, mentality. And in fact, she's more, she has more strength in carrying it out than he does. Um, And for her to sacrifice her son for the honor of her country is, it's an extreme example of, I think what you had been mentioning earlier of the mothers as the guides to the nation. Yeah, to, to, to sacrifice for the cause. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You know. And again, I, I, I wonder how it would have been in, understood at the time. Yeah. 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 And we still use that
1: language, right? The ultimate sacrifice.
0: Yes. Yes, exactly.
1: In, you know, in the, you know, in, in the way we talk about war and we talk about uh, that, you know, so I want to read a quote from your book, mm-hmm. quote, civil war films thus mapped the domesticity of the home onto the homeland. The American nation was envisioned as an extended household. This accounts for the prevalence of female participants in battle because they were equally important in defending the unity of family slash nation. Mm -hmm. So that's really like it's, it's making that very powerful connection. Right. Yeah, of representation and patriotism, yes. national yeah. identity
0: and war. Exactly. Yeah. And the at the time these um these films are largely categorized as melodramas. And there's a large kind of there's a, a connection between melodrama and the home and domesticity. And um there's there's so many, there were so many intersecting factors the same time the Civil War was this, sorry, these Civil War films were being created when American foreign policy was not about global, foreign policy was essentially an isolationist, stay at home, sort of, um, that was the popular discourse. And so what then the representation of militarism turns to is, Defending the borders, that even as we transition towards World War One, World War One was packaged or not packaged, but the threat of World War One was uh, always about what if they someone wins and invades us, and so it. So this idea of the homeland needs to be defended was something that ha- that was continually rehearsed. In popular culture, and it worked to it, you know it's the female character then becomes central to that story because she is because she's under the ultimate threat if the homeland is is um, invaded and she's also you know, she's the first kind of defense of it so she has to be protected but she also does the protecting it's yeah. kind of an interesting combo. It is, and you know, the woman is the home.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, she is the home. She really symbolizes, you know, keep the home fires burning. You yes, know? You Yeah. Know, she is the home. You know, so, you know, you probably have already kind of said this in the interview, but you know, there's so many fe- far fewer American Revolutionary War. Yes, made. Can did you have any thoughts on why so many fewer about the American Revolutionary
0: War? I think it comes down to. The American Revolutionary War is more cut and dry in its ideology. Like we were just talking about um, the Vietnam War, and the Vietnam War was one that was so hard to come to terms with, which tends to result in more representations. Right, that you have to work out what was happening, and the Civil War, I think, is some is more so than the American Revolution is something that needed to be um, continually revisited to understand how it fits in the national narrative. And the same with the, you know, westward expansion. And um, there's, there's so many ways that film was used to write a narrative of that history Whereas I think that the American revolution narrative was more cut and dry. It was, we had to break from England. We fought for our independence and we got it. And it's like, that is, that's easy to represent. The civil war is something that needed a lot more, um, a lot more effort to make it seem something um, positive to the, like of the, and it, again, it's, um, and this is the title of a film from that era, but it is a symbolic birth of the nation where two warring sides come together. So there's something just more, I think, um, there's more to work with in terms of representation and ideas behind it.
1: Yeah, and I, I think that probably in the 19... 19- you know, the early part of the 20th century, they're still coming, trying to come to terms.
0: Yes, with yeah. The Civil
1: War, and I would even argue that people are still trying to come to terms with the Civil yes. War now. Yes. You know, I, I notice. Well, there's still tons of books being written about the Civil War. Yes. And about, you know, what it meant.
0: Exactly. This
1: reassessment, and yeah, so it's it's really as an event in American history, I I don't think that there is no other event that eclipses it. No, yeah. So it's probably, you know, that's probably being reflected in
0: the film industry, trying to almost like work it out. Yes, exactly. And again, this is something that I, this is a, a minor intervention I hope my book will make, but when war film scholars talk about the war genre, they rarely will address this grouping of Civil War films. Um, there's one woman who did a book on the Civil War. I think her name is Jenny Barrett, and she has she does a really good job of covering the silent Civil War films. But for the most part, it's reference Birth of a Nation and then jump into like you know World War One and World War II films yeah and uh
1: it is it's it's really a a very interesting way you almost think of it in in psychological terms of you know the the nation trying to grapple with yes exactly you know just the the sheer proportion of the crisis yes yeah you know books films yes you know poetry you know art fine art you know Trying yeah. to to trying to come to grips with what did this mean? About what did it us? mean? Who and are and we
0: exactly? And and or can we can we reshape it to to seem like something more positive? Or mm-hmm. and what do we positive, move on
1: from there? Yeah. You know, how do you move on from there? You know, do you forgive and forget? Do you hold the right. grudge?
0: Well. And, and that's the other thing I've been, I, I suppose I've been emphasizing too much in this interview, the fact that these women were like active participants, but they also had then a love interest, for the most part, someone on the other side, right? So it it was also about that healing, that representational healing, I suppose, that comes from um, the the love uniting the two sides. Oh yeah.
1: Absolutely, right? So that, you know, if you can forgive your lover who's yeah, on the other side of the conflict and you know, tearing, you know, it, the symbolic union yeah, of the couple and the symbolic, you know, exactly. to represent the union of the yeah. north and the south. Yeah. So I think that no, I think I totally agree. I think that that's probably all those factors make it really dominate the yeah you know these the number of of films we also have in your in your book discussion of spreading ideas about american imperialism and mm-hmm. dealing with the the wars against mexico at this time as well yes yeah so how do silent films
0: explore these conflicts also well, so that those ones are interesting because there had been such a strong history of that um, of wars with Mexico represented in dime novels as well. So part of what my interest has always been is the sort of cross media um, representation of war. And so so we have that. We also have uh, there was, A scholar, I think Amy Kaplan, who talks about um, the the way that the American myth was really built on this idea of anti-imperialism, except that to build the country, imperial efforts had to take place. And so um, I used a lot of her conceptualization Sorry, my dog is moving. I'm just going to. I used a lot of um, her conceptualization of of the way that popular culture is used to uh, to do the kind of mental gymnastics of both being imperial and anti-imperial at the same time. And for me, the um, the wars with Mexico, like representation of that, is something. Um, is really similar to what she's talking about. And so, so there's this, again, it's a representation, and I'll come back to that idea of like the representation of the domestic space, where if you can represent all of this as home, as, as opposed to it's something that needs to be taken over, then it ends up being fighting for your space. Rather than taking over someone else's face. and so um, for me, this like cent- the centrality of women in these films really helped kind of define that like those borderland um, films as well. Right. The- this is about um, these films are about representing what counts as home, what counts as other, and you know who counts as American and. And yeah, there's these um, kind of the the war with Mexico though ends up being a really strange one representationally as well because it's often um, it's often also Mexican women meeting with American men, and so there's a uh, I think again. Um, like we were saying with the Civil War I think there was something that they need that needed to be worked out that was being kind of revisited in these films that is never totally solved um but because it ends up being again about like this uh, this meeting of the two that there's like a, a strange there's a and not quite solid border that's being represented there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, yeah. It, it, but there's, you know, there's far less of the Mexican war with Mexico films. Um, but it does show up as, it does show up, I think, as an anxiety, an anxiety yeah. to what, what constitutes home and what, um, what happens at the edge. Right. And and the issues of, of race, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And the differences, I think, um, this is one that I, I don't feel as confident speaking about because um, I haven't done like extensive research on this, but some of the sources that I was reading really talked about the way that at the turn of the century, there were, there was almost like hierarchies of race of like, if white is considered the the most superior, that there was, um it wasn't like white and everyone else. It was, there was variations of who is close enough to be included and who is excluded the most. Yeah. yeah. And so again, like I would defer this to people who have done much more research on that, but I think that that. Um, I have read compelling arguments about how you can see that even how it plays out in films about who is not shown at all. Like um, in the Civil War films, the complete lack of Black Americans is incredibly problematic. Um, But then you also then see kind of variations of um, representation of Indigenous uh, people, representations of Mexican and, and also like, uh, Latin American, um, that, that show that there is kind of a hierarchy there.
1: Mm. So while you were conducting this research, did you come across any films that really stood out
0: for you, but you know, that were like, oh my God, this is shocking, you know? Yeah. So The one that shocked me the most, I think my jaw was on the floor at the archive when I was watching, is called Behind the Door, which is now actually, it has been released on DVD and Blu-ray. So if people are interested in watching this, um, it is about, well, I guess I'm going to spoil it, but it's still worth watching. It's about um, a woman who, her husband is a sea captain. She sneaks on on the boat because she wants to stay close to him but uh, it's during the war, and the German submarine takes over the boat, finds the wife, takes her onto the submarine, and she's raped by the entire crew, and then shot out of the torpedo um, and killed that way, so again, this is not, I mean, this is 1910, so it's not that these were shown but they were very clearly stated that this is what happened and um her husband survives and vows that he will get revenge so years later he finds the german captain and um takes him into his captain's quarters and skins him alive and puts him in a closet so when his you know fellow um the The people on the boat with him come to find him he's sitting alone at the table and they ask where the guy is and he said I tried to skin him alive he died so he would so he's very disappointed that the guy died before he could suffer enough and then at the end of the movie the captain the uh, captain dies and reunites with his the spirit of his wife and it's just to Br- wow. brutal brutal film and I knew that anti-German sentiment was strong in these films like especially in the post-World War One um period but I was certainly not prepared for that level of horrific subject matter
1: you know and so I guess like ratings and you know the Hayes code and all that comes much much
0: later, right? Yes, yes, the, yeah. So the stuff that you see in movies from the tens and twenties—that's um, you're right. That's another uh, another misconception that people have that films didn't show problematic subject matter, but or not problematic, but like um, sex and drugs and violence and crime was um, very dominant before 1934, when the code came into being. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So,
1: you know, it's, it's another reason really, you know, to revisit these films because it really yeah. shows us, uh, you know, a lot about ourselves as a culture.
0: Yeah. Yes. And it's, how much
1: we could tolerate, you know?
0: Yeah. And I, I mean, I like when I'm teaching, I like to remind students that the past is not so distant from us right that the uh and also again like we had been talking about um not that we can we can never really know how audiences liked or disliked the films but we do have evidence that lots of these films were um or we have evidence of some films particularly birth of a nation that is was not universally accepted. Lots of people were angry about it. Um so I'm always reminding this the students as well, like these just because these are the films that survived or these are the films that that you see in school doesn't mean that everyone in 1910 thought this was the best or everyone thought this was a good message or, you know, there's a variety of people were just as divided then as they are now, but maybe not. I don't want to say divided. Like, I, I mean it as there's tons of different opinions. There always has been and always will be. Yeah. Well, one thing you always know when you go
1: to a film and you talk about it later with your friends or your family is that nobody ever agrees. <laughs> no, no. And I <laughs> you know and you always- broad disagreement. Of, yes. Oh my God. I thought this was film was great. Oh my God. I thought it was terrible. It was boring. Right. You know? So, you know, you never, um, it's part of what makes it fun.
0: Yes. Right. Yeah. And I really hope that people, when they read the book, understand that that's not something that I could address because I don't know, especially with some of these that were not huge cultural milestones, right? Like some of them, would have been in theater for a couple of weeks and then moved on. And so I, it's not like they would have been talked about widely or written about widely. Um, so I don't know how people in ta- reacted, but presumably there was as much debate then as there was as there is now.
1: Yeah. And, you know, they didn't have the opportunity for reruns or streaming yeah. over, and over again like we can re-watch things yeah and you can re-watch something years later and have a totally different reaction to it than you did initially exactly and these people probably went to the theater saw it once it went in the can yeah put on a shelf and nobody watched it again yeah so you know, I think that the fact that we can rewatch, or it's it, you go to the theater, you watch it, and then maybe a year or two later it comes on TV. Yeah, you get to see it again, and you get to kind of re-digest it. Yes, I think that's you know that's another difference in the way
0: we consume our media and the way we consume our. Um, yeah. Well, a f- uh, not fun fact, but this is also why film history was so slow to to kind of tell the story of the silent era because because they couldn't rewatch the historians that wrote the initial histories actually just wrote what they remembered watching years before. And so you end up with these histories that then, like there were a few, two or three, really big histories that were written about the the film industry that then when film studies started, scholars were using that as the memory of the silent era Mm -hmm. because they weren't going to archives and they didn't have any other source. So film history was taught based on these, um, like based on these histories that were just cobbled together memories from years, of, years later after watching the movies in the theater once. And mm-hmm. so then it took until I think about the 80s when hit, film historians really started to go back into the uh, archives and started to see, oh wait, there were other things happening and this story that we have of the film industry is not the right one.
1: Right. That's so interesting. And you know, the whole idea, the context is totally different. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Wow. And, you know, I was really compelled by the other section in the book about peace and preparedness. Mm, Can you talk a little bit about that section of the book and how women were depicted were depicted in these films that talk about peace and
0: preparedness? So, okay. So I'm going to take a momentary aside to, to just, um, Talk about the way that every time I said to somebody that I was writing a book about war films of the 1910s, the assumption was always, oh, okay, so you're talking about World War I films, which why, when you and I were just talking so much about the Civil War films, that's where I really hope um, there, people start to kind of recognize that the Civil War is, is so dominant in this period but then also because i'm the book i think is 1908 to 1919 the actual war world war 1 is only happening for a couple of years during that especially when you factor in that the united states only entered the war in 1917 so most of what i'm looking at is either is not wartime film and that preparedness section was probably one of my most favorite parts to write. Um, And it started because I was really interested in the serials. So serials were another really popular mode of film making at the time where people would come and watch week by week by week, Um, like, and they, the film would be also, the narrative would be written in the Sunday newspaper. So you could read an installment every week and go see the movie and, um, and, there were a handful of preparedness serials, and then I, you know, I just I found more and more about preparedness film and preparedness serial, which is why it became essentially two chapters. Um, but the preparedness films largely had either a woman who was um, an advocate of peace, an advocate of peace peace at any cost or an advocate of war and it really reflected at the time there were kind of two camps of filmmakers or and two camps of politicians some that were really in favor of preparing for war and some that were really in favor of staying out of war that the war in europe was in europe it is not our it's not our problem it's Over there, and we are, we're, that's not our concern. And so, um, depending on the filmmaker and their attitude to it, the women who would be uh, advocates of peace were either um, depicted as foolish or as right. And so, you have, again, um, this is because at the time there was, it was popularly known that there was lots of women in peace organizations. And so this knowledge of like the actual, um, the actual women in peace organizations makes its way into these preparedness films and they're either ridiculed or held up as the, you know, completely correct in their, love of peace so with the ones again it's kind of actually maybe I shouldn't have been so shocked it's very much like uh behind the door where the foolish versions of the peace at any cost women end up um now I'm forgetting that I think there's one that has to kill herself because she's about to be taken over by foreign invaders um there's a lot of there is a lot of brutality that's shown uh, like what will happen if we don't have a military what will happen to our women and you know it's obviously the the woman who was uh, who was trying to oppose the military that has the first kind of calamities against her yeah, I, I I found that really fascinating mm-hmm. because
1: you know for you know a long period before this before World War One you know the peace movement was very very active it was kind of an overlapping movement with the with the club movement with the suffrage mm-hmm. movement you know they were all a lot of the overlapping membership
0: yes. in yeah. these
1: organizations and, and you know famous women like Jane Adams. Yes, were leaders, and they had you know a, a tremendous amount of traction. Yeah. Uh, I remember the you know the story of when World War One breaks out. You know, women march in New York uh, to end the war and to and yeah. to oppose World War One, you know, American participation, and yeah, it just really it's it's such interesting tension. Between yes. these, you know, do-gooder women and patriotism. Mm-hmm. And so it's, I, I found that part of the book really, really interesting. And I have to say that I felt uh, some sympathy for the women in the peace movement whose heart is in the right place. Oh, yeah. You no. know, they're like, yeah. Hey, you know, look at the destruction of war. We lose yes. husbands, we lose sons. Men are, you know, naturally you know they believed in this kind of natural part of men's personalities to be you know yeah. rash to be you know quick to quick to violence quick to temper and that they were the heart and they understood that you know yeah. as mothers that the sacrifice of women during the war and that they needed to to represent the moral kind of core yeah family so i have to think that they were extremely distressed
0: yes (laughs) about the the representation uh, in the in the films where they are shown as foolish yes i mean that had to be
1: incredibly distressing to them and considering the amount of time and and really even the amount of progress they had made yes yeah uh, with that message at a time when you have people like teddy roosevelt right who's a Mm-hmm. You know, also as a progressive and leader of the of the progressive wing of their uh, of the party, but still, you know, quite uh hawkish
0: yes, in yeah. his
1: views on American exceptionalism and, and war and and the and the, the glory that goes along with participating and yeah. fighting a war. So yeah, that was really very, very interesting.
0: And again, there's, I think that there was of the preparedness films, I think there was only maybe one that was like really pro-peace. And so you have a lot more support of militarism, but part of it is just the politics of those who are involved in the film industry. So like you're pointing out, it's, it's not indicative of what everybody at the time was saying, it was, or what everybody was in support of, it was, it it was very much about um, popular politics making its way into film to be worked out again, but this time it's much more present because it's about something that's being debated um, in, you know, real time. All right. And then when you project forward, right? So then you project
1: forward to World War II and the government actually has a war, you know, an office of war information. Yes. Yeah. Where they actively produce films. Yes. To really- do that. So, you know, but it's it's interesting to look at this early period as sort of, you know, uh, a way of getting information out, but it's it's not years later yeah. where it really
0: is... There's, there was government involvement once the war took place. So uh, but yeah, the preparedness era, I find really fascinating. um, Because it's, yeah, it's not sanctioned yet. It's not that it's, but it's also um, in the most it well in the big cities sometimes the actual politicians would come in and do a speech before these films were shown so there was like actually um endorsements by the politi- by Wilson and Roosevelt depending on which what uh, ideas being represented so there it was less official but there was definitely kind of a um involvement from the from politicians.
1: Right.
0: It's really This book made me want to watch more silent
1: films. Yeah. <laughs> Can you recommend one? Do you have any to recommend the listeners who might
0: be interested in? in I have for? two that I really love that are also, uh, they're not war movies, but they are um, heavily like about women. And so the first one is Chicago, which I'm sure you've seen the musical. Um, The musical is based, I think, on a play or like it was, but it was made into a movie in 1927. And it's just a pleasure to watch. So that one is available. I know it's available on DVD. So uh, easy-ish to find. And then the other one is called Pandora's Box. And it's uh, with Louise Brooks, who's an American actress, but it's a German film. And it's it's just beautiful. It's a a really, and it's compelling. And, um, I showed it in class once and they, you know, the students were just mesmerized, which I, I always, um, use that as my kind of goalpost of if it's a, if it's a good movie, if it can capture a group of undergrads. Yeah. You know what I was just thinking, you know, you had mentioned
1: earlier in the interview that, you know, these, a lot of these films were only 10 minutes long. Yeah. And, and before we get to the feature films and isn't it interesting that we're now back to TikTok tock length. Yes. Yes. media. I, and I mean, I'm not a media expert in any sense, but you know, this kind of full circle, right. Yeah. Of,
0: of that going from short too long. And now we're well, I was just in a a meeting of silent film scholars, it was last weekend. And we were talking about like, how do you teach silent film? And how do you kind of compel undergrads to get excited about it again? And almost everyone was talking about how they now do a class where it's early film and TikTok, and And I did one three or four weeks ago with my class um, showing a handful of TikTok videos in comparison to these short uh, silent films. So um, if you want to look at uh, my favorite ridiculous silent film like from that kind of spectacle era is called The Dancing Pig from 1907. And it's this weird pig costume, but with a really Accurate pig face mask that opens and closes its mouth and like um, can move its tongue. It's like a very creepy pig, but he 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 dances, uh, and then a woman who's dancing with him rips off his clothes, and it's just bananas. It's uh, a joy to watch but also perplexing and interesting. <laughs> oh, that's
1: uh, that's really that's really interesting. So I want to thank Liz Clark for joining me on the show today. If you are a movie buff or have a film lover in your life, you need to get them a copy of The American Girl Goes to War. I really enjoyed this discussion. Thank, thank you, you Liz. Me too. So the name of the book is The American Girl Goes to War. Women and National Identity in U.S. Silent Film, published by Rutgers University Press. Until next time on New Books in Women's History, this is Jane Semecka. Keep reading.